Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. In the U.S. today, there are two kinds of communities. There are those communities that have a lot of broadband competition. There are those that don't. Today, we want to really talk about this question of broadband competition, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, you know, what does it mean? Do we really have a bad you know, situation here with uh, competition in the U.S.? The large telcos will tell us that everything is fine. There's robust competition. Yet you go out and you talk to people in the community, and they give a very different picture of uh, what's the what's the state of affairs with broadband. So today, I decided to bring a couple of folks on who can talk about broadband and the state of competition from the perspective of the private sector, the ISPs. And so joining us today are Jerry Katie, who is the Director of Sales and Marketing at LS Networks and is also on the Board of Directors for CompTEL. Uh, we had a representative from this organization, which I'll ask Jerry to talk a little bit about. Uh, we had them on the show a couple of weeks ago. And then Mark Scully, who is President of Comspan Communications. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start with a little bit about um, your respective companies, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take it from there, because you both are ISPs. You're in the Pacific Northwest, if, I, if I've got my research correct. Um, and we'll start with Jerry. Yes. Uh, thank you again for um, having, giving me the opportunity to talk about competition and uh, the state of, of where, where things are today. LS Networks is a very unique company. Um, we were started uh, in 2005, uh, and it was formed in order to, to purchase the assets of a failing uh, uh, organization that was, was funded by uh, a bunch of rural electric co-ops uh, with their intent of bringing broadband to their communities. Um, that uh, was a, was a non-profit, uh, and it was very good at, uh, at, at uh, spending money. It was not very good at, at building a self-sustaining business model. So a subset of, of those rural electric co-ops um, and a Native American corporation uh, purchased those assets and embarked on a strategy that took advantage of, of the uh, local assets in rural communities to um, build a sustainable business model uh, in throughout uh, initially Oregon and now in, into Washington. Um, the result of that is that Oregon is now, uh, if not one of the most connected states in the country. Um, we primarily have focused on rural communities, uh, and these communities go from, you know, less than a thousand residents up to, you know, maybe thirty or forty thousand residences. Um, and uh, uh, we have proven that you can do this type of a business model, creating a you know, sustainable business model and, and, you know, look forward to going to more and more communities. Mm-hmm. Primarily what we've done, what we did initially is uh, served six vertical markets and all of them very important uh, anchor tenancies. Uh, uh, healthcare is a huge market for us. Uh, we serve a, a large percentage of the uh, hospitals and medical facilities in Oregon. Um, state and local government, uh, we service uh, and we've, we're we service these in some of the tougher places. Uh, carriers, uh, we actually, uh, the result of this also is we've become a, a carrier of carriers. So we are a supplier also to all of the major carriers, uh, both local and long-distance carriers. Um, education, uh, we supply to the university systems a significant amount of their broadband connectivity uh, and K-12. through So if you look at all of those 
you know, environments, it's really served those communities very well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about your company and your environment that you're in. Okay, great. Sure, Comspan uh, had its beginnings shortly after the Telecommunications Act of 1996 went in effect and took advantage of those competitive provisions. And we started in southwestern Oregon and primarily serving business customers at the beginning where we were serving uh, voice and, and data services uh, and built the company initially uh, that way. Subsequently, about 10 years later, uh, we selected four cities, or my predecessors, I should say, uh, four small underserved towns in, in coastal Oregon, and we built uh, about 100 kilometers of fiber to the home where uh, this particular area, it was a, a former general telephone franchise. They had a lot of uh, old network from the incumbent, so that was an opportunity. So uh, where we provided business customers primarily at the beginning, we ended up being a triple play provider to not only the business community on the coast, but also to underserved residential communities. So we tended to be uh, not only voice and data, but also became a video provider and have since grown the company in that way, basically being a, a big fish in a, in a small pond, and mm-hmm. basically expanded our business not only to be a basic telecommunications provider, but we also find ourselves doing a lot of extra uh, services to our customers as technology gets more complicated and uh, customers try to uh, apply those technologies into their business. We tend to go deeper into a business and even into residential, residential services and provide a higher level of service. So um, a small town provider, uh, these, these towns range from cute coastal communities that are tourist or fishing communities to, to some communities that are a little down on their luck because of the downturn in the timber industry. So we find ourselves all across the spectrum uh, of, of uh, providing some some services to upscale communities to those who are really looking to broadband as as a cornerstone of some economic development initiatives uh, because they they've they've lost their their traditional uh, base not only employment base but tax base mm-hmm. so um, so we so we find ourselves in not only as a telecom provider but but politically active communally uh, active uh, in a wide ways uh, with with the community and and uh, being involved uh, in a vertical integration kind of way. So from uh, your perspective, and you guys are looking at more of the rural uh, small town scenes than say the big met- metropolis and whatnot, um, starting with Jerry, how do you see the state of broadband competition in the area that you guys play in? So that so uh, surprisingly, there is a lot of competition in some of the in some of the rural markets, um, and that really is a result of uh, the incumbent providers' uh, need to react to the innovation that we did many years ago. So what we've seen in in many of the communities that we've gone into is that as we've gone into the community, it's kind of raised the bar. So in order for the incumbent or uh, it, uh, to, to uh, remain competitive, they've had to either add additional services or relook at their tariffs in order to you know, compete with us. The other result is that uh, um, we've created a, we've been a real enabler in these communities for other ISPs. Um, what I mean by that is uh, many of the communities we go into, there's, they're only served by wireless ISPs. So by us bringing in, you know, uh, fiber to the community, uh, the ISPs have been able to get on our backbone and and provide, uh, you know, a wider reach to their to their communities. Where in the past, before we went into the community, everything was dial up at best. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, even as a small company you were able to have an impact on, uh, would you consider these much larger competitors, just you know, moderately larger competitors? It's, well, um, it's all of the incumbents. So if we look at our geography, we have CenturyLink uh, as a provider, we have Frontier as a provider, uh, and in the past we had um, Verizon as a provider. 
but the other co competition comes from the cable operators, so Charter, Comcast, uh, those types of organizations. So, um, you know, we, we see it from everybody, uh, you know, all of those types of companies in these communities. Okay. But the, but the event that created the competition was, you know, was bringing capacity into those marketplaces. The other irony of this is that in many cases, the incumbent provider, once we come into the community, becomes our customer. Uh, part of the issue that they had in the past is that, you know, they had built capacity, but they were out of capacity, and in some cases, they only had, a, uh, they, they had a, uh, a stranded market where they had a single fiber path into the market, so they didn't have protection. So uh -huh. uh, actually, about 80% of our revenue comes from carriers, uh, and it's all the largest carriers uh, in addition to the smaller carriers, um, you know, around the, the uh, Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Now, Mark, what's your take? Is, is the state of competition good? Is it bad? Uh, are we looking at, you know, monopoly, duopoly? What's, what's your take on things? Well, I would, I, I would say it, it's a mixed bag, depending which community you're, you're, you're referencing. We've, like, like Jerry was saying, uh, some of the towns that we initially built uh, into in 2007, we were basically the only game in town. Uh, then both the incumbent and the cable company had to react to these communities because of the infrastructure investment we we made there. So some communities are more competitive, um, some are less, uh, depending what, what the low-hanging fruit is. Uh, I would say the, the state of competition is, uh, especially for a rural state like Oregon, is, is pretty vibrant um, uh, from both uh, small competitors to large competitors as far as providing uh, as, as far as providing the basic services or what I would call the you know the digital plumbing and I think uh, where companies like like uh, LS networks and, and Comspan uh, depends what you call competition I, I think we can take the competition uh, to a higher level and consistently raise the bar where you're providing uh, uh, redundancy to critical care Providers, whether it's rural hospitals or government services. As a matter of fact, we're a big customer of, of Jerry's company because they have made the investment in these rural communities. So not only do we provide the end mile uh, competitively to the customer with added services, we provide them various alternatives out, what's, what's behind the curtain, what customers don't see. So in, in our areas, we're more subject to things like fiber cuts, or weather-related damages, or where aerial services are taken out. So, uh, depending which line you, you take it on the customer side, I say from 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 the surface, it looks like competition is is alive and well. As you dig down deeper, I think we have to be concerned with uh, how those uh, service levels are provided to those customers, so they're not subject uh, to outages in these rural areas and, and have the same uh, expectations of, of continuity of services as people enjoy in the metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. If I could add on to that, because there's a very, very good example uh, in an area that, that uh, Mars Company serves. Um, and initially, so there's a, a town called Coos Bay, Oregon, uh, Coos Bay North Bend area, and it was served only by Frontier. Um, and they had a single fiber route that went into the community. Uh, and it's along a mountainous road where there's mudslides, you know, trucks running into telephone poles. And two to three times a year, um, something would happen to that fiber. And the entire community would go dark. And what I mean by that is that they had no phone, no Internet, no 911, virtually no communications other than two-way radio. Frontier um, customers, did, I must add, Jerry. <laughs> Not Comspan customers. Uh, frontier customers had that problem, not frontier not customers. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, so what we did is we we designed and built an alternate path into the community so that uh, we could give protection into the community. And as as a result of that, Frontier became a customer of ours. So now, uh, you know, there is a diverse path into that community, and uh, they don't lose you know communications uh, you know from Frontier anymore. But without competition, without the encouragement of, of building these types of facilities, you know that we would still be in the in the same uh, that community would still be in the same position as it was, uh, you know, five years ago. 
So does that mean then that what you're saying is that, yes, there are communities with very few options, not a lot of competitors, but that is an opportunity then for smaller uh, providers to come in? I mean, how... Because maybe I should back this up for a second. So the dynamic that we kind of hear a lot about is that uh, there's a lot of communities that have little or no options for broadband, and or you hear that there are a lot of communities that only have one primary option for broadband, and then maybe one of the big uh, incumbents. And in both of those scenarios, um, communities aren't being served because, in essence, there are no competitors. Either there's nobody or there's just one body. Is that an uh, inaccurate assessment of the lay of the land in the Pacific Northwest? Craig, I think that's very accurate. Uh, what what uh, is, is different is that uh, the, the way that I look at any operator, whether you're, you know, any type of telecommunications operators, there's really two categories that I place them in. There are telecommunications operators, and for the most part, these are the incumbent telcos and, and uh, the legacy, uh, legacy companies. They're very good at operating networks. Uh, they're built on a tradition of over 100 years of, you know, the old Ma Bell, and, you know, you always knew that you could pick the phone up and you could get a dial tone. What they weren't real good at doing, uh, except for the initial you know, invention of the, of the phone, was they weren't real good at innovation. Uh, they, they used systems and practices and policies and so forth that they knew worked, and that did not promote innovation. As competition came in, they really ha we had to innovate. We had to do things that the incumbents didn't do, whether it was introducing a new service or a new technology or introducing, you know, uh, very expensive protection built into a community to solve a problem, that really has, has, has caused the what traditional operators to follow our innovation and to react to what we've, we've done in each one of these communities. Mm -hmm. But we also see a fair bit of backlash, though, I mean, in the sense of uh, attempts to, to squash the competition. I mean, I, I would not be one to say that... Um, you know, these large incumbents invite people to come in and compete in their territory. I mean, they're very, you know, proactively negative against community-run networks. They're not very positive toward, you know, community-run in the sense of a co-op or a, um, you know, nonprofit running the networks. I mean, they really try to go out of their way to, at least has been my experience, go out of their way to put them out of business, which then adds to the narrative that, you know, competition is bad because you can't get, you know, any kind of traction. Um, and, and again, I'm wondering, am I misreading it or is it, is it, um, is, is there something there that's kind of like a disconnect? I'm not sure. I mean, I so there's, got there's one reason. Yeah, there's one reason, only one reason that, um, that LS networks exist today and is a thriving company that has a sustainable business model. And that is because we were granted last mile access by the FCC to facilities that were already in place, uh, that were, were, you know, were funded by, you know, by money that uh, people spend w spent with the uh, incumbent carriers. If that were not granted, if we didn't have access to that, we would not have been able to succeed in any of these markets that we've gone into. And what we see today by the incumbent providers, by the larger providers, is they're using transition that we're making as an industry from traditional uh, facilities to IP, potentially as a way to restrict our access to um, other types of last mile facilities that are required in order to bring the types of services that we, you know, we need to bring to these communities. So there is a lot of risk, um, you know, in in some of the things that that they're promoting and that are on the table today with the FCC. Mm -hmm. So in, in in that respect, then it seems like uh, you you were able to get a shield basically <laughs> to to be able to enter the market, which was via the FCC. By the way, was that via the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Universal Service Fund program or another avenue? 
No, it's 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 uh, we actually were we did not participate in in or don't participate in the Universal Service Fund or or those programs. What it really was a a result of is rules that allow uh, us to use um, local copper assets uh, from the uh, from the incumbent carrier in order to deliver that last mile. When we go into a community, what we try to do is we want to use existing infrastructure, whether it's from the from the incumbent carrier or other providers like Comspan uh, first. Uh, if there's facilities available, it's much better for the community if we make the maximum usage of those you know, by, by you know, gaining access to that. Um, if it's not available, in many cases we are forced into overbuilding fiber in a community that may not really have, have needed it. And, it, and we, if we can use the existing carriers facilities, we can reach many more citizens. Mm -hmm. I think Jerry's bringing up an important point. One thing that can't be lost was the successes of, uh, of what happened in the Telecom Act of, of 1996. There were several sections in there which opened the incumbents network for competitors like us to use. Most specifically, what Jerry's uh, talking about is the last mile. Uh, that's, that's really what took competition that was basically restricted to long-distance competition before 1996 and, and, made, uh, and, and allowed the, uh, lowered the barriers of entry in a local competition, which created all sorts of innovation. I don't think anyone can disagree that that was a bad thing, even though those that tend to live in a monopoly world uh, uh, really don't like to see their monopoly e e eroded whatsoever. So these weren't federal subsidies or anything like the Universal Service Fund, this was actually just uh, uh, redefining the, the lay of the land. And remember, a lot of this outside plant that we can now use as competitors was put in place when, when these phone companies were monopolies. They were on rate of return regulation, meaning they essentially were bought and paid for by the rate payers in some indirect way. They were, they were regulated utilities, very much like electric and, and gas utilities are today, those who really are true monopolies. So it's not like they were uh, gave uh, – these, these were assets that were put in place under a different financial structure. And so it's very easy to justify that they should be open up from competition. And we can get into a different discussion on, on wireless spectrum. Uh, very, very much the same way. So Comspan was able to enter the market in 1996 by putting a switch in place in one particular town and be able to reach customers through those networks that were already built. So we didn't have to go and build them, which would have made the whole process uh, non, not, not viable. Um, so that's, that's really uh, what allowed competition to happen. Now, as copper is being replaced and fiber is being put into place, we may or may not have access to that because the Telecommunications Act, although very innovative and very forward-thinking in many areas, might not be structured in such a way that, that allows competitors to use those outside assets. And that's really what our concern is, especially as the large companies want to start addressing the rewrite of the Telecom Act of 96. So it's these distinctions, these nuances, we have to be careful of so so competition remains vibrant that we're not cut off from this last mile that that is so important to both Jerry and me. Mm -hmm. Do you think that? Um, well, well, first question: Does that justify the role, the continued role, or maybe an increased role of the federal government stepping in to um, force an action? Right, because the, the prevailing commentary from the larger companies is that any regulation is bad regulation and we don't want it and they're going to try to fight it. So are we at a point where, um, you know, we need uh, continued regulation, we need more regulation? Because it seems like we got to the point where you guys were able to grow because of federal regulation. It basically opened up the playing field. And now, to, we, we, you know, the playing field seems to be getting more restricted and more restricted. Do we need that same government intervention to, to, um, to counterbalance the increasing restrictive nature of the industry? 
one thing we certainly know uh, for for a fact that cannot be disputed is that the larger providers um, uh, will do anything that they can do to um, to maintain as much market share as they can maintain. And part of that process is in avoidance of, of oversight. Um, we are quite certain, I mean, there's a, there's a certainty that if there's not continued oversight and not continued uh, regulatory you know, intervention, that uh, competition will, you know, will maybe not cease to exist, but it will not have the same market pressure uh, that is forcing the incumbents to to uh, act nice <laughs> as it does today. And, and and I think we should all be students of of, of history of what's what's happened. We've we've already seen some erosion of the Telecom Act of '96 by uh, court court action by by the incumbents. Uh, smaller competitors, regional competitors like us, have already uh, seen lower. Uh, the, the barriers to entry raised because some of the things we we lost in about 2003 2004, um, when when certain provisions were taken out of of the Telecom Act, and it's these things we we have to be careful of. And I think the Telecom Act was real real good in philosophy. It was really well written as far as how how does competition uh, get out to to all areas, whether it's metropolitan areas or rural areas or secondary cities, and how competitors like us can go in and innovate. Because it's really those of us that are serving the end users in, in high-cost areas, especially for purposes of this show, is, is, uh, needs to be protected. I wouldn't call it federal intervention or regulatory inter intervention. Uh, I would say it's the FCC and, and uh, is, is doing its job by creating a, a, a balance. If, if one were to ask, would you rather be served by a large corporate carrier that has billions of dollars of assets and really strong with technology, or have a, a local provider that can custom make uh, uh, solutions for the local community, I, you know, I think the answer is both. Uh, I certainly have my own prejudices of, of uh, where I sell into the customer, but you do want that choice. And uh, I think Jerry's bringing up a good point. If, if the last mile isn't open to us, to competitors like us, um, then then competition will be stifled. We're already seeing it because there's less people coming into the telecommunications sector because certain barriers to entry have been raised since the Telecom Act. And that's where our, our concerns are. Right. I think there's a, what, something I'd like to add on, on top of that is maybe a little bit of, of look back on what the state of the networking environment in our part of the country would be uh, if the Telecommunications Act of 96 were out of place and, and we weren't allowed access to um, to create competition, to create a competitive environment, um, all of the different types of services play its, you know, play on top of each other. And it wasn't in '96; people weren't looking at having 4G LTE out to, you know, the vast majority of citizens in, you know, in this region, because we were allowed to compete, because we were, you know, allowed access to central office facilities and so forth, and and extend our footprint out to these rural areas, the impact that we've been able to have for uh, fiber to cell towers in very, very rural parts of the state uh, has been huge. Um, we've, we're currently building to over 400 cell towers uh, fiber, and these are in some areas that are just in the middle of nowhere, uh, mountaintops and and so forth, and this terrain out here isn't very easy to, to build those facilities. Now, if we look forward to, uh, to uh, what's happening with public safety and so forth, and, and uh, you know, the networking that's going to happen there, uh, you know, now we have a public safety network that really is a result of our entering you know, a competitive environment you know, many years ago. Mm -hmm. So, so it needs to obviously not go over the top, but it also, but it does also need to be there and in some uh, meaningful way. You know, a question I tend to ask a lot of folks, you know, that come onto the show, you know, when they're talking about, uh, you know, these issues about competition and 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 fighting barriers and whatnot. 
how do smaller and mid-sized uh, companies such as yours uh, get a get a fair voice in a game that's set in Washington where the larger companies have lobbyists and money and all kinds of resources. How do you guys, you know, whose who's space, workspace is, you know, thousands of miles away from D.C., how do, you, how do you balance the scales? So I think there's a couple of ways. One is, and, and Mark, uh, I know you've been very active in the local community, uh, but also organizations like CompTEL have been you know, very active in advocating for competitive telecommunications services. Uh, so by us participating with CompTEL, we really you know, have much more of a voice than if we were just uh, you know, stuck out here in the great Pacific Northwest. Um, so, Mark, I mean, maybe you can talk about some of the local things that you've done. I know that you had a recent meeting with uh, with uh, our congressman and so forth. Definitely, yeah. Let's let's hear about that one. Is Mark still with us? We may have lost Mark. <laughs> oh my. Uh, actually, why don't you continue the discussion about CompTEL? I know some folks were here when when Angie Cronenberg was here on the show, but why don't you just give us a recap of what um, CompTEL is about, and then let me try to go find Mark. You bet. So CompTEL is an organization that's made up of, of uh, competitive uh, telecommunications providers, uh, both large and small. Uh, the membership is, you know, we are probably one of the, mo the smaller members uh, that have uh, – have have joined CompTEL, but you know also the large large carriers are you know parts of CompTEL, and it really is is an environment where um, we can get that the type of voice that we would not have had. We've done things like uh, at CEO fly-ins where uh, members Luke. of CompTEL have come to Washington D.C. and uh, been able to have direct and meaningful meetings with. Uh, both staff and also senators and congresspeople to advocate for uh, competition and have that voice. Um, I think without CompTEL, we really would have no voice, and we'd, we'd be completely relying on um, the good nature of, uh, of the larger carriers, which mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have worked out so well for us. <laughs> right. No, I totally see that. Mark, we lost you for a second. That's why I had to drop you and call you back in. Um, and, and just and just so you know, I'm presently in rural Nevada on an AT&T line, so perhaps uh, <laughs> I don't want to say there's a conspiracy, however. <laughs> okay, I see where that's going, man. Uh, well, we'll we'll try to we'll try to keep everybody safe and connected here. Um, either that or turn this into a really bad ad for incumbents, but. Um, Mark, we, we were going to get an idea of some of the things that you are doing locally to help balance the scales of, of influence here a little bit uh, against some of the larger companies. Okay, well, uh, I think I could probably address that on, on, on various levels. So uh, like both uh, uh, Ellis Networks and Comspan, we, we serve rural areas uh, probably with, with an eye towards uh, uh, a little deeper technology. As, uh, Jerry made a great example with the city of Coos, Coos Bay where, where there's, there's redundancy on the network backbone and, and last mile, which really customers don't, don't see. But on the consumer level, uh, we're, we're, we're involved with one particular city that if you go down the main street, uh, half of the storefronts are boarded up because they were a victim of the downturn in the timber industry in, 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 in this area. We are involved uh, not only uh, by, like I, like I like to say, the incumbents are, are in the digital plumbing business, and they do that very well, um, as, 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 as we do. But I think the, the notion is what small carriers can do, we not only sell technology, but we sell applications. We need to get into our customers and manage to the desktop. Uh, technology is getting more complicated. Small to medium enterprises, which is our bailiwick, uh, really have uh, uh, have have to manage their technology, and they may not have the resources to do that. So we're finding ourselves to be the cooperative telecommunications uh, uh, 
department of of many small but medium businesses and and it is getting uh, the, the 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 network is is more vulnerable uh to to hacking and and security threats so we're we take that on as far as pro- uh, dealing with firewalls and and other protections. So overall, I've been competing with monopolies since 1985, and everyone says, "How do you compete with the big guys?" And it's really about service. It's understanding the customer's business, going in and developing custom needs to us, basically becoming uh, your their resource uh, for all things technical. Even though you may find yourself supporting services that aren't yours, or even bringing in customers or services that that uh, from your competitors to to fill out a, partic- a particular need. We we really win on the service side. So uh, um, then, uh, then you start getting into other areas that Jerry mentioned where you get into public safety issues, especially with rural communities. They don't have um, uh, real access to that. I remember uh, being a, a provider to a lot of governments in California during the Loma Prieta earthquake. Those cities that we went into and serviced and and really took a a look at at all those things, all their 911 services and and all their phone lines stayed up. And I like to say those who didn't have us uh, didn't have that background. They they were on a phone system that everybody was on, and when an earthquake happens and there's a lot of congestion and so forth. So we were able to take a look to those things. They might not be obvious, to uh, uh, that 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 you could market yourself generally, but when when we develop that kind of relationship with a customer, whether it's a hospital, uh, government, emergency services, we can get deeper into those IT departments and really develop something that that takes them out to more reliability. And as and uh, where we are on the coast, reliability is an issue. We don't want to, Southwestern Oregon to be treated like a third world nation which if it's neglected and the incumbents don't have the necessary focus, whether they're required to on a regulatory basis or they're not incented to do to, uh, to uh, compete with new entrants like us, then we will have pockets of underserved and third world type of areas. I've seen it. It's, it's happening elsewhere uh, in the country uh, where it's easier to for the incumbents to focus where where the revenue is and not and really not be the carrier of last resort which which they need to be in certain communities um, and and they don't want to put the infrastructure uh, into those those areas and that's where the regulation comes in I won't call it federal in- intervention it's basically uh, looking at communications as a utility this is a this is a real whether it's broadband or dial tone or voice services or video services, it is something that needs to be ubiquitous all throughout the nation, and it's something that requires government oversight so there's so we don't create a digital divide, the haves and have-nots, especially uh, in rural communities where access to broadband is a real pillar for economic development. So not only is it good for telecom, it's good for competition, It's it really goes into other areas uh, of, of uh legislative interests uh, that the legislators and regulators should be looking at. So I'd like to maybe address the economic development uh, aspect and give a very specific example of why this is so important and the result of of, uh, providing facilities into rural markets. There's a a small community uh, called Veneta, Oregon, that uh, had a very, very high unemployment rate. Uh, And we've got fiber um, going into Veneta. Uh, Oregon, uh, we partnered with a company that is putting a 200-seat uh, call center uh, in cooperation with the city of Veneta in order to uh, uh, in order to create an environment where they've essentially are creating you know, potentially a, you know 200 or more jobs in that community. The impact of 200 jobs in a community the size of Veneta, which maybe has 2,500 or 3,000 um, citizens, is huge. And you know we can do things like that and help those communities create you know jobs and, you know and not you know arbitrary jobs but good paying you know full time full benefited jobs where they just didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. So but this has a ripple effect into graduating uh, high school students. Uh, a lot of them 
the uh, the unemployment rate is is not only high in these areas. There's there's really no career path for for people just coming out of high school. They're they're leaving towns, and it has a ripple effect in social issues as well because they have to move to Portland or they have to go elsewhere, and uh, where they can. It's it's the uh, it's leaving the rural areas for the city, where broadband is that great equalizer where, where like Vanita, uh, you can bring uh, good-paying jobs as long as the infrastructure is there. Mm-hmm. So you're basically saying then use the um, economic benefit and the value that that represents to uh, use that as leverage for federal involvement, uh, regulatory involvement, to make sure that this carrier of last resort role is is honored. Uh, yes, and there's both both directly but also indirectly. Uh, mm-hmm. Indirectly, in that if we were not allowed access to those facilities, if they did not cooperate well with us, then we would have had no incentive to. Uh, build facilities into these communities, and as a matter of fact, our, our business model would not have been sustainable. And even if we did build in, we probably would have had to pull back, and then there'd be a stranded asset or you know facility in that marketplace. Um, so part of it is regulatory, but that's kind of an entry point. The other part of it is you know looking at other business models around the country that have allowed for that competition has you know has. Uh, has allowed for a business model that uh, is going to be here 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. How do you see um, the end result if this trend of carriers giving up the um, oh this carrier of last resort role, if that becomes you know wider spread and permanent, what's going to be the end result of that in practical terms? Mark, I'll let you take that one. Yeah. Well, um, well, the 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 incumbents uh, uh, have certain benefits that they enjoy by being the incumbent, just like those we received uh, by being competitive local exchange carriers, competitive local phone companies under certain sections of the Telecom Act. If if they were allowed to abandon their carry of last resort, then you're just going to see a degradation of service. You're going to see telecommunications act like any other business where you go where you go where the market is. Telecommunication. This this is where what we really have to be careful of as as people start talking about that there needs to be a rewrite of the Communications Act and so forth. That that we don't deflect. The, away from the real issues, which is maintaining competition in, in all areas. And I know the subject of, of, of this particular show is on rural competition. That, that needs to stay in, in place. And I think it has to be where rural regulation comes in, the, the phone companies, the incumbents, receive a, a large amount of subsidies already through universal service uh, funds, and, and this is the big issue as, as we go in and, and transfer, uh, switch from a universal service fund to a Connect America fund, that this doesn't get lost in the trans, trans, transition, and especially that small providers such as us uh, at least have the option to, to, to sit at that, that table. So keep in mind that the incumbents are very well rewarded uh, to, to be the carrier of last rejo- resort. They may not like it uh, in certain instances, especially in rural areas like, like Oregon, but they do get the lion's share of the subsidies that many of your listeners see on their phone bills that they don't know what they go for. Well, what is this large tax? What is this federal tax? What is this universal service fund tax? Most of those monies go back to the, in- the incumbent phone companies to uh, take the pain out of serving these high-cost areas or being a carrier of last resort that they normally wouldn't be. And I think it needs to stay that way. This is not a typical business. This is not a. Uh, this is a utility service, very much like electricity, gas, and so forth, and should be regulated as such, not from an intervention point of view, but but to make sure that the rules apply in certain areas of the country. It's hard to make rules uh, specifically on technology throughout the country, but as long as we keep an eye that the rules 
are based on competition that, that uh, innovators like Ellis Networks and Comspan can get in and use those existing networks and, and, and pay for them, uh, whether they're the mile of la the, the carrier of last resort or, or working in a metropolitan area, uh, I, 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 I think that's fine. I, I think we can just carry on the way we're doing things. As long as there's some balance in the way the competitive field is regulated. And the Telecom Act of 96 did a great job of that. And we shouldn't lose sight of what's working in 96. And you will see some great marketing, some great lobbying of the, the large uh, phone companies on why it should be changed. And they'll, they'll make some common sense arguments uh, from the high level. But as you dig in on some of the things that, that Jerry and I were talking about as it relates to uh, social issues within these towns, economic development, job creation. Telecom is part of all that. And, and if you just think it's a technology issue, it's not. And that's where our concerns are in the rewrite of the Communications Act. It's got to be focused on competition, what works, uh, lower barriers to entry for innovators such as us, and, and go on from there. So I'm not sure if I addressed your exact question, uh, Craig. Well, but, um, I, I, I do want to say, though, um, you know, to also look at the the urban side of things, because actually my show, my business, everything is about uh, the full realm. I mean, there, this, there are different issues, and certain issues affect, say, rural areas more than urban or, or, or vice versa. But uh, ultimately, you know, I do want to understand, and I think the audience wants to understand, how do these um, rules how does this issue of competition impact things on the urban side? Because I firmly believe people underrate the importance and the seriousness of the problem in urban areas because everyone's focused on the rural. Craig, you're, you're absolutely right. Rural areas and, and urban areas have much more in common than they, they have uh, than, than people would expect. Um, Rural areas are underserved. Many urban areas are underserved. The impact of uh, access to last-mile services in, in urban areas is probably more important than it is in rural areas. Uh, rural areas are, are uh, you know, have, don't have the population base and so forth to support um, you know, uh, a lot of, of uh, facilities and so forth, nearly to the degree that the urban areas do. So take the example of, of access to last mile services as we transition from IP, or excuse me, from tele, traditional telecommunication services to IP. In, by having access to last mile services, it's much easier for competition to enter a more densely populated area. Uh, one of the differences that we have as a company is our construction cost in, uh, in rural areas is, is pretty, it can be pretty economical. When we look at an urban area like Portland, which we have, we have just this last year done our first construction project in, you know, in what we would consider a, you know, a metro urban area, the cost per mile to construct uh, for us is about you know, 5x of what it is in the rural areas. So as we look at moving into the metropolitan areas and the urban areas of, of, the, of the city, you know, justifying that type of construction is very difficult. On the other hand, if we have access to last mile facilities within the area, we can bring that same innovation to the urban and metro markets that we've done in, in rural areas uh, on an economic basis that, makes it, that encourages us to enter these markets. So I, I think it's you know, much more, we should support much more access to last mile services, even in urban areas as we do in rural areas. Now, did I understand that right? You just said that it is more expensive to, to get into the last mile business in urban areas than in rural areas? Yes, much, much more expensive. Is, is that because of the volume that you have so many people to deal with that you have to build out to? Because the assumption is, at least the, the comments often here, is that it's more expensive to build in the rural areas because you have to go further to, to tie, you know, tie together every dozen subscribers than you do in the, rural, and then in the urban areas. So you're, you're absolutely right. If you talk about distance, uh, it's more expensive to, to go to the rural areas, and that's really what we did. Is we, we bridged that gap of distance between rural communities and, and the metropolitan marketplaces. In an urban area or a metropolitan area, our co the costs are, different, are much higher because you're dealing with um, diff a different uh, 
you know, regulatory environment permitting. Uh, tearing up streets to, you know, bury fiber is much more expensive than, than you know, hanging fiber on, you know, utility poles uh, to get to a, a, you know, a rural area. So uh, there's, it's, it's much easier for us to compete and to create these innovative services in, in the more urban markets and metro markets if we have access to uh, last mile facility and not just copper. Uh, you know, copper, we do a great job of making the best use of it and getting great speeds out of it, but eventually that infrastructure is going to go away. If we lost access to the replacement infrastructure, you know, we would still survive in the rural areas, but we would not be able to enter the, the urban markets. Wow. And I've seen that firsthand in my hometown of Philadelphia, uh, and so I'm not rural. I'm not rural telecom provider by 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 nature. Uh, I'm I'm a product of urban telecom originally, and uh, you know we've seen certain initiatives. Uh, Philadelphia Wireless is probably the poster child of not of what not to do. That was an unmitigated disaster, although the, uh, well intentioned. But if I were to start a, a phone company in Philadelphia right now, and there was a lot of copper replacement with fiber, I would have a difficult time serving my own folks, my, my own parents, my sister there, because the, the way the rules are uh, that if fiber was put in uh, a part or fully to, to, the, to my parents' location, for instance, uh, the copper the Verizon, in this case, would take that out of their inventory. It would still be there, but they they would take that out of their their inventory. So if I went in as a competitive local exchange carrier later and I wanted to serve my parents, um, even though the facilities were there, they would not be available to us as an unbundled network element, which is really uh, what opened up competition in certain sections of the Telecom Act. And, and that is what Jerry is getting to, access to the last mile. And this is where you have to be careful under the Telecom Act of, of 96, uh, or the rewrite of it, is, is to make sure we, we don't lose the specifics, the, the nuances, or else we could be legislated out of business uh, maybe not immediately, but it would be a slow death if we don't pay attention to access to customers. What connects uh, companies like Comspan or Else Networks or, or our, our fraternity of small phone companies serving metropolitan areas? How do they get to the last customers? The issues are the same. How do you create a competitive environment that uh, that is sustainable over changes of technology, seen and unseen, down the road. And that's the real issue here. Wow. You know, I'm from Philadelphia, too, by the way, and so I have followed all of Philly's trials and travails and shake my head some days and, you know, fist pump the other days, and it, it's pretty crazy. Because I think you also have in those, in those urban areas, I think more so than in rural areas, is the incumbents have a great amount of weight in the political process in an urban area. I mean, it's like there's a huge investment, there's a lot of staff, there's a lot of just stuff that gets invested in a Verizon relationship or a Comcast relationship, and to try to unseat that becomes a real, uh, I mean, a struggle. It's, I, I look at Philadelphia and someday I just shake my head at all of the you know, concessions that Comcast will extract from the city, yet the ability to try to go against that as a new competitor is is just outrageous. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. You're hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have had some long battles. I, uh, it's just amazing what has ha happened since uh, AT&T broke up and, uh, uh, 83, when it, the competition started in 1984, long distance. Then 96 really opened up the doors uh, for for local. And international was open before then. I mean, no one enjoyed international phone calls for what it is now. It's a race to zero. We've really driven the cost of telecommunications down. And you're right, Comcast is a huge political animal, in, in, especially in Phil Philadelphia. But you still drive up and down the streets of Philadelphia. There's a lot of direct TV and dish satellite services because they're not providing the basic customer service to the people. So in Comcast's own backyard, uh, uh, people are opting.
using uh, uh, for alternative video services, but but not using the last mile, but using satellite to do so. But but it's it's once again our position, uh, my position, I think Jerry's position. We as an industry on the state level and national level is just maintain those competitive provisions in the Telecom Act going forward, and it's access to the last mile. If we cannot connect to the customer, it's, it's game over. And, uh, you, and we can build to our customers, like we've did in small towns, uh, select, some, uh, select uh, four towns in Oregon. Jerry's done, done all over the state. But it's not going to be cost effective. And what you're going to see is a re-monopolization of the telecom in, uh, industry where, where, where choice is limited and innovation is, is, is not the name of the game. Mm-hmm. We, we keep the incumbents on their toes. Right. There's less of us because of, of some of the erosions of the Telecom Act. So we'd like to see where those barriers to entry and access to last mile is really the focus of, of regulatory oversight. And not to pick on you, Craig, it's not intervention. It's really uh, being a student of history and seeing how we got here, why the incumbents enjoy the networks they have. A lot of those networks and buildings and right-of-ways were paid with ratepayer regulation when they were a monopoly. And they were they were with ratepayer funds, so so it is it, that has to be taken into perspective. Hmm, interesting. Now we're about down to four minutes, so you guys pull out your stopwatches, and starting with Mark, you got ninety seconds. Tell me uh, one, maybe two tips for how consumers, the average folks out there, your subscribers, how they can partner with, help you as a small provider to be more competitive. How how are our economic? Are you talking about local governments or local consumer bases? The local consumer bases slash government. You know that whole collection right, of sure. local folk. Well, I think one. Uh, this is this is a big issue for us as an industry that probably doesn't get the uh, the, the the headlines locally because it's they're they're not going to run out of bread or milk to to tomorrow. I think they need to help us to be legislatively and regulatorily active. Uh, we have just started in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not saying we were asleep. We have just started engaging uh, with our elected officials, um, and I think we could use some help uh, from the citizens, citizenry of the towns we operate in and the local governments to really uh, promote uh, our agenda uh, there I say lobbying, our legislative advocacy to help make sure that comp- comp- competition be- remains vibrant in these communities, or else we're going to wake up someday in the future and say, well, we wish we had known what your real issues then. And that's, that's really for us to ed- educate our local officials so it goes upstream to, the, to, the, to our federal official, officials. And we have embarked in that. We're all, uh, Jerry and I are members of the Northwest Telecommunications Association, which is a, a group of, of competitors, but we work together on, on legislative and technical issues, and, and that really needs to be our, our focus. So we're, we're back in the saddle being active, and any help that can be done to back us up by the cities we serve or the customers we serve would be real helpful. Okay. Uh, and one of the guests in the chat room points out that you guys also might want to reach out to the open source programming community to help build mass and, and so forth because they – I think are very much wedded to you know your survival and your success. All right. Very good. Ninety seconds. What do we got? Who who did, who did I not hear from? Who? Jerry, you're on, oh, Jerry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I think the, the most important thing is is uh, is education. Is I think that the more educated that the uh, individuals are in the community as to what. Um, what actions are being taken in both the, the local, state, and federal level is very important. But that really rests on our shoulders uh, as, as an organization uh, to, uh, or as organizations to, you know, to have active campaigns where the communities are educated on what's happening. Because, frankly, even in my family, I mean, you would think that they would know uh, what's going on because of what I do every day, but you know, their eyes glaze over when I start to talk about some of the challenges that we have. I can see where that, that's the case. Well, I want to thank you guys for being guests today. It has been very helpful. It has been very educational. Um, I, I will contact you guys again, I'm sure. Best of luck. 
thank you again and uh you know for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. And thank you to our audience for being with us again. Uh we had a great show. We got some more great shows coming up and we're going to say goodbye with a little musical interlude and have a great day. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.